We do pray that the Lord will shine the light of his grace and mercy on love and love on us today and always. <clears throat> if Jesus came to Johnson City, would he be welcomed here? Would he be embraced? Would he be celebrated? Or would he be rejected and asked to leave? Would he, the city leaders beg him to go to some other town and leave Johnson City alone? We certainly hope that would not happen, but it did happen on one occasion to Jesus as he traveled to a new place. It was the region of the Gerasenes, as Luke tells it in his gospel, on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And for an act of mercy, Jesus was rejected and asked to leave. I want us to look this morning at that story in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's a story that illustrates an ironic truth. And that is, Jesus commands the demonic spirits and they are compelled to obey. But the human spirit is given the freedom to reject the Lord and His commands, and too often, sadly, does. Luke chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 26 and read down through verse 37. So if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 26, the Bible says, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot, kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned." When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Thank you. Please be seated. 
Jesus and his disciples had crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the other side, this land of the Gerasenes, as Luke puts it, possibly in order to escape for a while the crowds and their constant need for ministry and attention. But no sooner than Jesus had stepped ashore, verse 27 says, than he was met by a man who was demon-possessed. Now this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. One difference is that Matthew records there were two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke record only one, but don't say there was only one. There may be another reason why Matthew records too. He was writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew sometimes uses uh, uh, pairs where others might use a single thing because the Jews had a, an emphasis on there being at least two or more witnesses to any testimony or any statement of fact in order for it to be accepted as true. We don't really know exactly why this is as it is. Maybe only one of them became a Christian. Maybe one of them represented both of them. Whatever the case, Matthew's account is the shortest. It has fewer details because his point is to show Jesus' authority over all supernatural powers. And you might be inclined to ask, Pastor, is that what this is? Supernatural powers? Is this actual demon possession? In our modern world, we might be inclined to explain the violent and unusual behavior of this man as some kind of a mental disorder, a synaptic deficiency perhaps, schizophrenia, or some other similar technical diagnosis. And there are people today who suffer from those very things. Occasionally I have opportunity to counsel with a man who is a diagnosed schizophrenic, and he comes to see me whenever he begins to be uh, tormented by the demons that he can see. And I, I reassure him that they can't hurt him, that he belongs to Christ, that he just need pray and go into the Scriptures, and he'll be fine. And he is. There are those kinds of things in our world. But while that might be used to explain the behavior of this man, what about the pigs? How do you explain that? That part of the story tells us that this is no mere mental disorder. No. I think that even mental health professionals, if they are honest, would have to admit that there are behavioral anomalies that sometimes occur in the human psyche that science cannot fully explain. Now, I am more than prepared to acknowledge that the eternal God of the universe had to condescend to us in our limited understanding in order to become a man and be able to communicate with us about our world and, and bring us to redemption. And that we understand more about our surroundings and human physiology today than the pre-scientific generation to which Jesus was sent and to whom He preached. But the testimony of the Word of God 
is that there is a real personification of evil that Jesus called Satan, and that he has among his cohort evil spirits who are just as opposed to God and His goodness as is Satan himself. That is the testimony of the Scriptures. And one of Satan's most evil and cunning objectives is to convince people like you and me that he doesn't really exist. So yes, this is a true case of demon possession. But let me issue a word of caution here. There are believers, sincere believers, who began to see a demon behind every bush, if you will, responsible for every little thing that comes their way that doesn't suit them or doesn't please them, but sometimes it's just a toothache. Sometimes it's just a headache. It's not always a demon attacking us. And Christians, by the way, cannot be possessed by demons. If we have within us the Holy Spirit of God, there is no demon that can penetrate that. I assure you. But we can be attacked by demonic forces. Oh yes, demonic forces attack us at every opportunity and every turn. I have fought with them many times over the course of my ministry especially. Uh, the, the better things seem to be going for the Lord, the more the demons seem to want to stop that in its tracks. Demons can attack believers. They've been attacking our congregation for some while now. And uh, if we let them do that, if we succumb to that temptation to say that thing we shouldn't ought to say, to pass along that piece of gossip that shouldn't be passed along at all, if we do or think those things that we shouldn't, then those demons delight. There is a demonic attack that can come upon us. But we know someone who has authority over those demons. The Bible tells us in verse 27 that this man lived in the tombs. How appropriate that is, that he lived in the tombs. Because Satan's objective is to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus says. So it's appropriate that this man would be living there among the dead. Satan embodies death. He represents death. He produces death. But Jesus is life. It's no wonder there is enmity expressed in this passage between Jesus and the demonic realm. The demons actually speak in verse 28. They ask Jesus what His purpose is. They call Him the Son of the Most High God. That's very revealing. Their awareness of reality in the supernatural realm is keen, more so than our own, I think. They acknowledged what many people do not, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, possessing all of the authority and wisdom of God Himself, and is, in fact, God Himself. The demons acknowledge that, but that should serve as a warning for us 
It's not enough just to acknowledge who Jesus is. The demons acknowledge it and they are lost. They perish. They're destined for the abyss, as it were. We must do more than simply acknowledge who Jesus is if He's going to be able to save us and redeem us and turn us into the kind of people God created us to be from the very start. We also have to submit to that authority in an obedience that springs from faith. The demons don't do that. And they tell Jesus they don't want to be tortured or sent into the abyss. Matthew's gospel includes a little tidbit that's revealing. They say, we, have you come to torture us before the time? That is the time of judgment the time when the demons and Satan will be cast into the abyss, a lake of fire to be destroyed forever and ever. They don't want that. They're asking Jesus, is that, is that what this is? Because they're worried, they're concerned. They make a strange request to Jesus. They ask Him if it's okay if they have to come out of this man at Jesus' command, and they do, they have no choice. They ask if they can go into a herd of pigs that was being kept over there along the side, apparently. They make this request, it would seem, because they have an aversion to being disembodied. They're like a parasite or a cancer. They crave a host. And so they ask Jesus to allow them to go into the pigs, and Jesus gave them permission to do so. This was a large herd of pigs. Mark's Gospel tells us there were 2,000 of them. That's quite a large herd of pigs, worth a lot of money today. It would have been even more valuable, I suspect, in that situation, that economy. And Jesus doesn't say anything about the pigs. His concern was for the well-being of the possessed man. Now some say that Jesus permitted the spirits to enter the pigs in order to provide a visible demonstration to this liberated man and to the witnesses that the spirits were gone, gone for good. Perhaps. In any case, the unclean spirits went into what the Jews considered to be unclean animals. But then the swine bolted and ran. When the demonic spirits came upon them, they ran. They wound up perishing in the sea, it says, drowning themselves in the sea. In our staff meeting last Monday afternoon, we were talking about a potential title for this sermon, and one of our ministry assistants suggested calling it Bay of Pigs. And I was sorely tempted. <laughs> but uh, there's a segment of our, of our group probably that has no idea what the Bay of Pigs was. So I went with something else. But it would have been appropriate because that's where the pigs ended up. The pigs rushed down into the Sea of Galilee. They were drowned. They were lost. Was that a surprise? It certainly wasn't Jesus' intent to destroy that herd of pigs. It's been said that horse sense is what keeps horses from betting on people. 
there may be a certain thing called pig sense. Perhaps pigs are supposedly among the most intelligent of the animal kingdom. Could it be that these pigs had enough pig sense to bolt and run from the kind of demonic spirits that too many human beings don't have sense enough not to flirt with? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? In any case, even though they were unclean animals, it wasn't Jesus' intent to destroy them, and Jesus didn't. It was the demonic spirits who destroyed the pigs, in keeping with their master's mission to steal and to kill and destroy. The only question is, why would they do such a thing? Was it a surprise to the demons that the pigs would drown themselves? They would have lost their new home, as it were. Or could it be that they cunningly and purposely destroyed those pigs in the hope of turning the garrison people against Jesus? One capable commentator, at least, thinks so. And if so, it shows how cunning the adversary can be in his plans to keep people from accepting Jesus, from knowing Jesus, from being saved by Jesus. And sure enough, the Gerasenes later ask Jesus to leave. Does that mean Satan won? Did he outmaneuver Jesus in this chess match for human lives? No, not in the least. Luke's Gospel and Mark also tell us that Jesus left behind a witness. A witness who was none other than a former demoniac. The man who had been cleansed was left there to testify what God had done. In the next couple of verses we didn't read, beginning in verse 38, it says, "...the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with Jesus." But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus left a witness, and what a witness it is. And by the way, Jesus ascended into heaven and left witnesses here. The earliest Christ followers shared their witness, and they've passed that witness down to us, the latest generation, to receive it. And we are expected to do what this healed demoniac did, what our ancestors in the faith have done, to share not some elaborate evangelistic outline, some uh, persuasive propositional approach to the gospel, but to do simply what Jesus asked this man to do. Go and tell how much God has done for you. That's a witness. That's evangelism. No one can argue with that. When you say, this is what God did for me, who's going to dispute that? It's yours to tell. And uh, there are signs that would suggest that this man's witness bore great fruit in that area. But the Gerasenes could have had someone better. 
They could have had Jesus himself. Jesus was there. Jesus could have shared straight from the mouth of God himself the salvation that he has brought to humankind. Before the witness, the healed man told his story, the pig herdsmen told their story in verse 34. Now they were the herdsmen, not the owners. So the story they told, no doubt, was told in such a way as to exonerate themselves from any and all blame for the loss of this great herd of pigs. No, no, they would have said, it's all, it's all that man's fault. It's all Jesus' fault. It's not our fault. Sure, this demoniac was healed, but the pigs are gone. The pigs are gone. It's an outrage. We've lost our pigs. It was probably all over cable news that night. Stirring up more outrage. Getting the people all ginned up. But what's more important? People or pigs? Jesus knew which was more important. But the Gerasenes didn't. They chose the pigs. They chose the pigs. They didn't care that a healing had happened, only that their pigs had perished. They had lost something of their own. Who cares if this man was saved? There's a lot of that same attitude in America today, a selfishness. Uh, a self-centered looking out for number one. Like CEOs who don't care anything about their employees as long as their bonuses survive, as long as the stock price goes up. Unscrupulous lenders and brokers who establish subprime mortgages for borrowers who can't afford those mortgages just so they can pocket large sums up front. And who cares what it might ultimately do to the economy? One very large bank was fined for creating two million unrequested accounts for their, in their customers' names in order to collect performance bonuses and fees without their customers' consent. Plaintiffs and attorneys file frivolous lawsuits trying to pocket some easy money without a thought for the people who are going to lose their insurance coverage because of the skyrocketing premiums that result from those settlements. Politicians willing to say anything, rationalize any kind of behavior in order to avoid losing any votes that might take them from power or reduce their power. Even religious leaders who bilk their followers with false promises based on bad theology just so they can feather their own nests and build their own empires. It's the attitude of as long as I'm comfortable, as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm taken care of, the rest of the world can go to hell for all I care. That's what it is. That man can keep his demons if helping him is going to cost me any pigs. The bottom line is selfishness, and too many of us suffer from it. We see it every day. It was selfishness in part that caused these garrisons to reject Jesus and everything he had to offer them. And that's a tragedy, friends. It's an eternal tragedy, in fact. But that's not the only reason. There was another factor in their rejection of Jesus. 
Luke says that the people asked him to leave because they were overcome with fear. Mark mentions it in his telling as well. They were afraid. They had a comfortable little existence there. They were, they were afraid of something new. They didn't want anything to disrupt what they were used to. They didn't want anything unfamiliar. They were accustomed to their lives as they were, and they didn't want to take the risk necessary to find out if there might be something better. Have you ever known anyone who held on to their demons because they were afraid of what life might be like without them? Because they'd wrestled with those demons for so long that they'd grown accustomed to it. It was familiar, and they were afraid to be free, preferring a familiar misery to an unfamiliar liberty. It's sad to see, but it happens, and happens frequently. People cling to their sickness because they're afraid of the cure. But Jesus can help. Jesus will help, but you have to trust Him in order to find that help. Jesus has the authority over all of the demons of hell, and He can set you free, but you have to trust Him in order for Him to be able to do it. There's a story that's told of a mountain climber who was on a solo climb up a steep mountain, and he was fixing ropes along the way for safety's sake in case he happened to slip. But then a huge storm blew in, and the snow was blowing into a whiteout condition, and, and he couldn't see. There was absolutely zero visibility. And if that weren't all, he couldn't make enough progress to get out of there before nightfall. The sun went down. It made visibility even worse. And that's when he took a wrong step and slipped and fell. But the rope that he had fixed caught him, stopped him from losing his life, and he was dangling there at the end of that rope in thin air, unable to see anything, unable to touch anything. He couldn't pull himself back up. He was too spent and exhausted. He didn't know what to do. He literally was at the end of his rope, and so he prayed. He asked God, God, help me. God said, I will help you if you trust me. Can you trust me? The man said, yes, God, whatever, whatever it takes. I, I trust you. Help me. God said, if you trust me, cut the rope. Next morning, when the storm had cleared, the rescuers found the man frozen to death, still hanging at the end of that rope, four feet above the ground. He thought he was able to trust God, but he couldn't. What a tragic mistake these garrisons made by being too afraid to trust God. By telling Jesus to go away, they begged Him, according to Matthew and, and Mark's gospel, they begged Him the Savior of the world, they begged Him to leave them alone. So He did. It says, so He got into the boat and left. They rejected their Redeemer. Whatever you do, whether selfish or fearful, do not reject your Redeemer. 
You've got to have the courage to cut the rope that entangles you. You've got to have the courage to sever those bonds of sin, those shackles of iniquity that keep you in your misery. And trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust that He has the power and the authority to set you free. But if you do, He will. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the times we have failed to trust you. It's so easy to look to our own understanding. But God, the scripture tells us that that is the way of death. Help us instead to look to you, to trust in you, to acknowledge Jesus as who he truly is, the son of the most high God. And not only that, to order our lives around that reality, to, to confess Him, put our faith and trust in Him so that we might be saved. And God, these garrisons missed out. What a tremendous opportunity they had. We think that here in this place we would relish the opportunity to have Jesus here among us. But I wonder if we might not be too afraid as well. Too afraid that Jesus might disrupt our comfortable existence. Too afraid that Jesus might make some kind of change that takes us out of our comfort zones. I pray God that as a community and even more as individuals, we would never beg our Lord Jesus to go away. Instead, God, we invite Him into this place by Your Holy Spirit to move among us, to do His magnificent and miraculous work in our hearts, in our church, in our community, and in our world. Make it so, God, is our sincere prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to